Greetings, Meltopians. If you've become enthralled by the dark wastes and nightscapes of Meltopia, and want to further explore its Stygian depths, consider joining our Patreon. For $2 a month, you could become a Meltopian and gain access to the darkest artworks, as well as written mythos pieces contained in the Melgrim, entries in Meltopia's own dark encyclopedia, and the legendary Corpus Diabolos, an elite publication containing essays written by the most esteemed dark scholars. For $5 a month, become a feared mailsayer and gain early access to episodes on the Meltopia and Sleepwake Cycle podcasts, and listen to new episodes of our audio series, Tales of Meltopia, The Lost Library, and The Weird Book. And for $10 a month, join the ranks of the Melsapien, where you can listen to our Patreon-exclusive podcast, October's Children, as well as gain access to found recordings discovered throughout the world in The Weird Tapes. But if you're not ready to delve into the pitch just yet, and would rather swim the shallows to test the blackened waters, you can explore our public page which contains our entire backlog of Tales of Meltopia, The Lost Library, and The Weird Book, episodes from the Meltopia podcast, which all together number over a hundred episodes. So, whether you want to become a full denizen of the dark, or simply peruse the public archives, come visit us at patreon.com forward slash Meltopia. That's M-A-E-L- T-O-P-I-A. Now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I've waited a long time for this interview, Mr. Mills. As you know, I've been hoping to publish another book on gentlemen such as yourself for a while now. But I gotta admit, I didn't want to move forward until I got you. You were pretty stubborn about talking. Why have you decided to speak now? Well, I decided what the hell. Gotta talk sometime, I guess. Plus, your letters were becoming a bit of a nuisance. (laughs) I admit, I can be a bit pushy. (laughs) Well, it paid off, I suppose. By the way... That's a nice trinket you got hanging around your neck. Where'd you get it? You don't mind me asking. Oh, this? Uh, it's something my father gave me before he passed. I wear it to remind me of him. Good for you. Family is important for some people. Keeps them grounded, I suppose. Well, why don't we start there? Why don't you take us to the beginning, from your childhood? Tell us your story. Who is Oberyn Mills, and how did he become the infamous Breathtaker Killer? Well, that's a loaded question now, isn't it, Mr. Alex? We always think we can rely on the beginning of things for an explanation. 
trace back the horror to a singular instance. That moment where the evil switch just turns on. My childhood was less a weather vane and more an old photograph stuffed in some beaten up old dresser somewhere. Truth is, you won't find much there. It's static, frozen, a rogue chunk of ice that's no longer part of this burg. Never was, really. But I understand the intrigue and origin stories, Mr. Alex, especially when it pertains to monsters. So if you and yours want to hear about the old family there, who am I to deny you? Please, if you can. Daddy was a laborer, you know the type. He had hands as big as bear claws, maybe just as lethal too. Saw him punch a man once, a farmhand, I, I believe, for saying something inappropriate to my mother. Nearly took the man's head off. He wasn't a violent man, mind you. It's just, there weren't much time for beating around the bush about things. Farm life is a tough life, you see. Chorn to be done and whatnot. It's a straightforward life. There's no time to dress the personality, you see. No flair to pin on our psychology for others to see and admire. The pretense is shoveled out with a cow shit, so to speak. But all in all, my daddy was a kind man. Stoic, not much of a talker. <laughs> not like me, anyway. Now, my ma, she was a gentle thing. What you might call a genuine saint. Now, don't get me wrong. We'd get a good licking if we was being irate. But at the end of the day, she'd always say, You'll always be my little angels, even if y'all are always raising the devil. Although, given my current status as one of the world's most notorious killers, I think it's safe to say she might have had a change of heart on that particular matter. Provided she was still around, that is. Now, I know you notice I mentioned siblings, brothers and sisters. But to be honest, they was just hollow bodies, that's all. Shells stuffed with the wet and slimy stuff of imitated life. They all were, really. You see, they were under the yoke of all this clutter. Jobs, families, friends, coffee days, late night TV, football games, all of it. It hemmed them in, crushed them, emptied them out until there was nothing but flat paper dials beholden to the breeze. Now, I'm afraid you won't find me through them, Mr. Alex. No more than you might find a moth by examining the little shell it once wormed its way out of. So what do you think set you on this path, then? If not a troubled family life, then what? Was there something else early in life that triggered it? Or do you think it was just something that was always there, born bad, so to speak? We're all just messy things, Mr. Alex. Heaps of this and that. With me, the colors just got washed with the whites, I guess. Maybe that means I got a nasty batch of nucleotides, or perhaps a couple DNA strands got themselves tangled, knotted up so bad there was no one doing it. Cruelty in the chromosomes, you might say. Then again... Maybe it wasn't no accident at all. Maybe genes are just little spiral staircases, and someone, or something, decided to give me a few more steps. So you're saying you're above everyone else? More evolved? That's kind of narcissistic, don't you think? Especially given what you've done? Oh, come now, Mr. Alex. Isn't that what this is all about? To get inside the head of the mysterious neo-psychotic? Or is it not too path now? It's difficult to keep up with the vernacular. Clinicians <laughs> do love their petty jargon. I suppose you're right, Mr. Mills. But let's go back. Let's say you were born to become this, or at least had a predisposition. 
When did you first feel the impulses or urges? Was there a moment or a series of experiences when you started to realize what you were? I always knew I was different. Didn't take no effort to see that. Like I said, my family was just empty jaws, and so was everyone else I met. But I suppose you're wanting to hear specifics the moment that amorphous feeling was given shape. I was about seven years old at the time, traipsing about the woods as I was wont to do. The sky was gray that day and cut up into little jagged pieces by all the branches of the forest canopy. I remember thinking what a wonderful puzzle it would make. All those little bits sitting in front of me, spending the day just piecing the heavens together. If I recall correctly, I spent most of my day playing in a stream I'd become quite fond of. There was always a fun helping the pollywogs and minnows swimming in there, and I was keen on putting them all in a plastic bucket, watching them wriggle around in their new doll and plastic home. Not sure why I was intrigued by the little critters, but such is the enigma of childhood, I suppose. Anyway, I couldn't tell you what eventually brought me to that old farmer's field. I'd never had any interest in it before. Oh, but I do remember the sight. The sun was dying in the distance, bleeding its rays across an endless sea of golden Kansas wheat. The fading light turned the plants into a deep copper, making you feel like it was looking out over some kind of dead and rusted harvest. But most of all, I remember the strange path that cut through the field. Now mind you, I, I had no idea why I was there, but it felt to me like a like an invitation. A red copper made of beaten down corn stalks and flattened goldenrod. I followed it, of course, boyhood curiosity being what it is and all. But you can imagine my surprise when I found a girl, no more than, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old, lying there in a big old circle of flattened wheat. She was all cut up and bruised, laid out like a tossed out broken doll in someone's backyard. And boy was she scared. Her body was trembling like an earthquake, and those scrunched up eyelids of hers just couldn't seem to do the job of damning the tears streaming down her face. Man, she was shaking so hard I thought she might break apart. Anyway, I didn't know what to do, of course. I'd never seen anything like it. So I just sat down next to her, watched her body heave up and down, slower and slower. I remember thinking there was a certain music to her breaths, a kind of cadence that gave the world around me pace. Then the blacks of her eyes called me closer. It was like ebbing whirlpools, and I couldn't help but get caught in their undertow. Not that I resisted, mind you. But wouldn't you know that when I got close enough, that pretty, broken-up thing grabbed my hands? I remember thinking how strong she was for such a feeble little thing, and wondering if I was gonna die, get gobbled up like some insect by one of them Venus flytraps. But she just placed my hands around her neck. I knew what she wanted me to do right then and there. I could feel her blood vessels plump to the pressure of my hands. It felt like our muscles were dancing, cavorting to the same strange melody beating within our respective beings. And then, when her eyes rolled back and I could feel her body relenting, her hand shot up again and pulled my face close to hers. My hands loosened, and out from that girl's mouth came the most wonderful thing I'd ever experienced. It felt like a mistral, a gust of a life freed from the flesh and bone box we were all trapped in. 
It was her last breath. All the heavens and hells of her life escaping on a single exhale current. I breathed it in, welcomed it, saved it from wasting out there in the coffin of this awful world. So this was your first victim then? An injured teenage girl you found in a neighboring farmer's field? Any idea who she was, or how she got there? Funny thing that is, Mr. Alex. You see, after the whole ordeal, I ran home and told my daddy about that injured girl in Mr. Woodall's field. I left out the strangling part, of course. Whole smorgasbord of blinking lights ended up in that field. Police, ambulances, fire department, the whole shebang. But they didn't turn up anything. Not a goddamn thing. No dead girl. No giant path made from broken stalks. Hell, they couldn't even find signs that I've been in there. Nope. After all was said and done, I was just a little boy crying wolf, complete with a blistered ass and three months of shoveling shit from the horse's stalls. So, you didn't strangle a girl to death? Was it a dream? A hallucination? It was a beginning, Mr. Alex. A stepping stone, if you will. Her corporeality is inconsequential, peripheral to her effects. You see, after that, the world was a new place. I no longer sought the company of my amphibious friends in the creek. I'm quite sure they were thankful for it, too. In a way, we both escaped the trappings of a paler world. Mind you, I still spent most of my free time in the woods. My daddy taught me how to track and hunt early on, you see. And by my teens, I could stalk just about anything. But I was still sloppy back then. Growing pains, I suppose. Not the killing, mind you. At that, I was a born natural. But I mean ascertaining the essence of it all. What was I chasing? Would I know it when I caught it? Could I know it? I was grasping at things without having any fingers, if you understand my meaning. No? What I'm trying to say is I knew where to find what I was looking for, and I knew how it made me feel. But the what of it, the gnosis of the thing, you might say, eluded me. As such, my initial attempts to transcend were largely reflexive, empty pre-programmed responses to external stimulation. I would trap squirrels, raccoons, deer, anything the woods had to offer, really and then play out the events of that strange day like I was abiding a script or following directions from some how-to manual instructing you how to build a lawnmower. It's kind of fun to think back on it, remembering how ridiculous I must have looked down on my hands and knees face to face with my dying quarry, inhaling the last breath. Hell, I would even go into the bogs, find the deadest old tree I could find, and breathe in the air singing out of the big old hollows. Yep. I was just a cave painting of a person back then, some depthless, primitive scrawling trying to escape the fate of his fellow stick man. So what caused you to, uh, ascend, as you put it? What were you doing wrong? You can fold your hands into a teepee, Mr. Alex, but that doesn't mean God's gonna talk to you, or listen to what you got to say. You see, I was mistaking the ritual for the thing itself, thinking one thing was the same as the other. Imagine teaching someone how to speak, but never explain the meaning of the words. The act becomes empty to speak a little more than a pet cockatoo parroting its master's words. Point is, without meaning, the act is nothing but pantomime, hollow, trivial, and soulless. Luckily, 
Failure isn't without its rewards. Just because my actions didn't result in the desired outcome doesn't mean they wasn't appreciated. You see, those last breaths I've been sucking up were starting to give me more than just a bad taste in my mouth. They was breathing secrets into me, filling me up, gasp by fatal gasp. Something was whispering on the dead air I'd been conjuring, and I was finally learning to listen. That's when I began to understand, and quite auspiciously, it was about the time I met sweet Rosie Willoughby. Your first official victim. Sure, if that's what you want to call her. I was 19 at the time, working construction in Auburn. It was my day off, and I was having a bite at my favorite sandwich shop. Never had been able to pass up a good Italian sub. I was just looking out the window, watching the hustle and bustle of things, as I was wont to do. Amazing how people scurry about, always in a hurry to go nowhere. Anyway, it was storming that day. Lightning was whipping the land something awful, like the dirt had wronged the sky in some way. Wind was lashing too, swaying itself into a tizzy. I remember a parade of dead leaves coloring the streets. All them oranges, yellows, and reds frolicking to the music of the rain. For a brief moment, the world was replaced by a warm autumn mural. I couldn't see anything else. And then it stopped. The storm was gone, and the colorful debris of its last breath lay like a red carpet at the feet of Miss Rosie Willoughby. That's a sign if I ever heard one, wouldn't you say, Mr. Alex? Well, it doesn't take Sam that I followed her home. A quaint little place on the edge of town, quiet, humble. I remember there being a nice little flower garden in the back. Mostly mums, some pansies maybe. All loaded over by one of them bathtub Madonnas. Fun of the things we remember, isn't it? Anyway, didn't take much to get in. Storm doors were left unlocked. Same for the one at the top of the basement stairs. I saw her there, standing over a pot of boiling potatoes. She looked like a ghost with all those wispy fingers of steam coloring around her. It was only a few moments before my hands were wrapped around her neck. Storm the screams trying to escape. But it was when the green surrendered to the whites of her eyes, and my grip grew slack, that I found what I was looking for. Her last breath felt like a tempest entering my lungs, the warm gale of a summer storm. Everything she was passed into me, her life, her memories, her soul. So you think your victims become one with you, that their being merges with your own? All this through their last breath of air? Isn't that a bit ridiculous? Maybe insane? Do you know what breathing is, Mr. Alex? We inhale the world into that slick, flabby thing we call lungs and mix it with the red oil we got pumping through our veins. And then, after the two mingle a bit in this big old bag of bones and meat, we breathe out the progeny of that union. And round and round we go, dancing with the world. Us taking a piece of it, it taking a piece of us. But then, when the waltz is finally over and our lifelong dancing partner threatens to leave us, well, we can't help but get all sentimental. In those last panicked moments, when we're teetering on the blubbering lip between this world and that big black ditch we call oblivion, it don't take a genius to know which way we go running. We give over everything to the world, evacuating this crumbling home on the wings of a last breath. And there we live, bodiless astronauts floating on a prayer, hoping the world will cradle us in a newborn incorporeal life. 
But the truth is, we simply linger like a stain refusing to come up. Most of the time, we just wander old hallways or dusty basements, repeating the same old routines like some empty-headed wind-up dial. But not Rosie. I gave her a different ending, a pathway to something greater, something whose every breath is a last breath. And who or what would that be, Mr. Mills? Not quite sure if I'm being honest. I ain't got the tongue to speak his real name, I'm guessing. I imagine it's something fancy, something that can only be pronounced through the last exhales of a dying son, or maybe the parting gasp of a god who's grown too old. Like I said, something fancy. So, you served this thing, is that correct? How do you know it's real? I mean, surely you're a smart man. You know the psychologists all think you're delusional, psychotic, like the son of Sam and his dog. Now, now, Mr. Alex. Do you really think I'm here to convince you of those eggheads what's real and what's not? I could tell you all about the time the thing spoke to me on the voice of a windstorm, whispering through the lips of my windowsill. Maybe even talk about the times a visitor made during sleep, appearing as a howl on the lips of a thousand dying men, or maybe a dying girl in the middle of a lonely Kansas field. Point is, I'm not here to convert anybody. I'm just here to give you what you want, a little danger for those watching at home, a glimpse of evil from the comfort of their fluffy couches. So, you believe you're evil? Evil ain't nothing but coloring outside the lines, Mr. Alex. It's a deviation from the beaten path, that's all. But tell me this, you ever wonder why people, your audience for instance, want to hear what I got to say? Why, despite their outrage at my heinous actions and character, they want to listen to the gruesome details of my exploits. What do they want to know about my family, my beliefs, even the obscure peccadillas scarring my less than virginal reputation? Nothing. Perhaps you're too afraid to admit that deep down there's a certain admiration at work, a dark and secret envy hiding like a tiny flower on that shiny moral diamond you and all the rest of them have been flown. I don't believe that for a second, Mr. Mills, but I'll bite. Why do you think people envy you? Me and my ilk, if you want to call them that, have shrugged this world in favor of others, ones that strained against the tyranny of this one. Those other worlds call to all of us, of course, whether that be through the last breath of a flailing body, the black vision of a nightmare, or the fleeting urge to see a person aflame or reduced to a pile of squirming parts. However, the moral orthodoxy squelches those messages, buries them beneath mountains of scripture, social mores, laws, pick your poison, it's all the same. Most are too afraid to fight the dominion of consensus, that ever stalwart illusion of right and wrong, real and unreal. Few are still even able to recognize the demiurges of this sour reality, unable to see banality for the bulwark it is. Still, whispers seep through the cracks, and some of us are better listeners than others. Once you're able to sneak past the guard towers of this cold wasteland, well, you start to realize the things you once thought were stars were nothing less than giant burning eyes, watching and waiting for who might be looking back. You realize things aren't what they seem. That's freedom, Mr. Alex. 
Oh, the watchers at home may not admit it, but when you hear about my misdeeds, their stomach becomes busy with butterflies. They convince themselves their fascination is just a sort of morbid curiosity, a mere perusal of evil. But really, it's admiration. We are wild and dangerous things, Mr. Alex. And when wild and dangerous things see one of their own wandering free, indulging their true nature, they become resentful of the domestication. They see what it is to move and act without shackles, to cast this bleak reality aside and wholly indulge another. And so they live vicariously through me and my like, hating us publicly, envying us privately. I think you're wrong, Mr. Mills. I think you're conflating intrigue and revelry for the purposes of justifying your actions and perspectives, exotifying, if you will, your impulses so as to deny their immorality and pathological foundations. People are generally good, Mr. Mills. I don't think a couple bad apples can speak for the whole orchard. <laughs> well said, Mr. Alex. You sound just like one of them eggheads in there, spitting my words round on me, hoping they can use them as shovels to dig deeper into this old bean of mine. I imagine that's what this is all about to begin with. All these other questions you've been asking is just window dressing, isn't it? You and I both know that. So why don't you ask me what you came to ask me about? You want to know if there's still a little bit of that bad old darkness from 1999 still in me, don't you? Give me a little extra kick in my step. I've read the papers and heard all the stories, Mr. Alex, so don't be shy. Ask away. Well, I'll let you bring it up. Did you notice a change after 1999? Before, your murders were numerous, but more banal. Certainly, you used more tools, your hands, rope, piano wire, but you strangled them all. But after the darkness, well, that seemed to stop. Specifically, your victims were found with no bruises or ligature marks around their necks. Instead, according to the coroners of each case, they died from a rapid collapse of the lungs. With no signs of physical assault or pre-existing conditions such as pulmonary disease or cystic fibrosis. It's a mystery how you did it. <laughs> it's got them eggheads worked up into a tizzy, don't it? I've read all sorts of different interpretations, Mr. Alex. All equally wonderful. All equally wrong. Well, I read one that said I somehow caused a temporary vacuum. <laughs> leading all the oxygen in the room to rapidly vacate. Causing the fragile little lungs to just... Can you believe that? But as much as I'd like to indulge, the truth of the matter is I didn't change at all. You did. What do you mean? I don't have to tell you that after the darkness people changed. Sure, no one could expressly remember what happened, but the horror of it all had seeped into our bones, stained our pretty little ideas of the world like blood on a white dress. There was no scrubbing it out. It was in us. Part of us. Its implications washed over us like a nuclear fallout, mutating us into horribly aware things, despite us trying to bury that awareness beneath so many layers of forgotten memory. The world we thought we knew suddenly dropped its mask, bearing all its crooked teeth and red beaming eyes. Man, it simply provided it another mask, a necessary illusion for those who can't get out from under the bones of that dead old reality. But for those who can't replace the guys, those who can't shoulder the weight of that black year's revelations, well, they just give up. 
There's no superpowers or magic involved, no metaphysical boogeyman loping house to house, gobbling up all the available air. There's just desperate people looking for escape. And when they see me, they see a way out, sheltered from the storm. You see now, Mr. Alex, I no longer need to force the breath from their lungs. They give it willingly. To be frank, I kind of miss doing it the old-fashioned way. I was raised a laborer, you see. Just don't feel right at times having all the work done for me. So you want people to believe you're helping these people? That they want to die? <laughs> I don't want people to believe anything, Mr. Alex. I'm simply providing you an uncomfortable truth. As for whether I'm there to help, well, I only said they were desperate to leave. It could be I'm simply the nearest exit. Regardless, they're with me, with it now. Their breaths breathing life into his ever-heaving lungs. But their last breath isn't the only thing you take from them, is it, Mr. Mills? One of the things that changed after 1999 is your newfound affinity for trophies, something you previously didn't do. The families of the deceased reported, in almost all post-darkness cases, that you took an item from the victim's gloom cabinet, where they stored physical memorabilia of the Great Darkness, usually items located where they were first discovered after the disaster. Why the sudden fascination? Hell, <laughs> I was wondering when you was gonna get to that part. I reckon you think it's for some deep-seated psychological reason. Something the eggheads always poking and prodding me would think up. Let me guess. The objects are fetishized representations of my kills. Something that brings me back to the murder scene. My very own little time machines. <laughs> oh, well... I admit, they're souvenirs. I've always been a lover of trinkets and little doodads. But the honest truth is, I wanted to see if anybody could figure it out. The pattern, that is. What? What do you mean? Your killings have never had a pattern. They've always been random. No singular profile for your victims. Oh, there's always been a pattern. Just one only I can see. But after the darkness, I thought I'd create one more explicit. Leave some breadcrumbs for someone to follow. I confess, I've always enjoyed the idea of a nemesis. A clever gumshoe hot on my trail. Me always just one step ahead. <laughs> Too many detective stories, I suppose. But I guess there ain't no sense in keeping it a secret no more. After the darkness, everyone I killed I had a connection to. Quite literally, in fact. You see, when I woke up from the darkness, I was in some kind of weird contraption. A big old tube in my mouth feeding me air. It felt wonderful, like I was swallowing the last gasps of God himself. When I got out of the thing, I could see rows of people in what looked like them iron lungs they used to put people in. You know, keep them breathing. Well, wouldn't you know, all of them were just hanging by a thread. Each breath the last, and yet it wasn't. Somehow, something had managed to keep them on the cusp of death, and then... After life had seemingly left them on the wings of a final exhale, the machine resuscitated them and started the whole process again. And all them death rattles and dying breaths went straight into me. Spiritual finales siphoned through a plain plastic tube. A wonderful metaphor, I think, for the tragedy that is this world. For all its color, for all its espoused extravagance, it all ends gray and unspectacular, like rainbows dying into mud. For most, anyway. Well, anyway, I noticed that a good portion of those machines was empty. 
The occupants had woke up, left. I knew I had to find them. It told me through all those last breaths, through the final wheeze of that dark epoch, find them and it'll be whole again. And so I did, Mr. Alex. You see, I had a little piece of each of them in me, so I knew where to look. I've been finding them ever since that day, drawn back what was rightfully mine. The gloom cabinet objects were just verification. All of them taken from that place we were all reborn in. Little things are just sitting on my shelf, gathering dust, waiting for the rest of the family to join them. So you're saying you could find them because you had a part of them in you? <laughs> That's a bit hard to swallow. Is it now? Is it as hard to swallow as the lie you fed me about that necklace of yours? Your daddy didn't give you that. He was only generous when it came to divvying our black eyes and broken spirits. Harry was an awful father, dear. Mean as a junkyard dog, that one. Funny that was your first impulse, to say it was a gift from your father. Wonder what that says about you. Wait, what? <coughs> how do you, how do you know that? <laughs> I told you, I got a little piece of everyone that was down there with me. That's how I know that little trinket you wear around your neck is from that strange little place we all woke up in. You don't remember leaving there. Last thing you remember about the whole ordeal was waking up in a stream, which just happened to be only a couple miles away. <laughs> if only you remembered, this whole thing would have played out differently. No! <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're having a hard time catching their breath, too. But don't worry. I see myself out when I'm done here. Now, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. You see, the rest of them, those who woke up after the darkness and managed to escape the new homes I had apparently made for them, they just went on about their business, empty-headed dummies, blindly plodding forward. They were easy to get. But you... You retain some of that darkness. I suppose it just joined the little bit of it you already had in you. Maybe that's why you're so keen on interviewing murderers. You've made a whole career of it after all. But it did lead you to be awfully paranoid. <laughs> there was no way I could slip into that home of yours. Not with all the security and fences. It was even beyond my abilities. But among all my assets, patience, Mr. Alex is my most valuable. Well, I had to make my capture look accidental, like I had finally messed up, despite years of going uncaptured. And then, of course, I had to deny your many requests for an interview. Get you hungry, you know. Disarm you of any suspicion that I might have ulterior motives. But now here you are. No fences, no guards, no fancy security system, or no Doberman pinches to protect you. I've waited three years to get you here, and finally draw that last breath you've been clutching for much too long. It's time to come home, Mr. Alex. You have been missed. <laughs>